0: The Comics Magazine Association of America's Comic Book Code of 1954, Code for Editorial Matter, General Standards, Part A.
1: 1. Crimes shall never be presented in such a way as to create sympathy for the criminal, to promote distrust for the forces of law and justice, or to inspire others with the desire to imitate criminals. 2. No comics shall explicitly present the unique details and methods of a crime. 3. Policemen, judges, government officials, and respected institutions shall never be presented in such a way as to create disrespect for established authority. 4. If crime is depicted, it shall be as a sordid and unpleasant activity. 5. Criminals shall not be presented so as to be rendered glamorous or to occupy a position which creates a desire for emulation. 6. In every instance, good shall triumph over evil... And the criminal punished for his misdeeds. 7. Scenes of excessive violence shall be prohibited. Scenes of brutal torture, excessive and unnecessary knife and gun play, physical agony, gory and gruesome crime shall be eliminated. 8. No unique or unusual methods of concealing weapons shall be shown. 9. Instances of law enforcement officers dying as a result of criminals' activities should be discouraged. 10. The crime of kidnapping shall
0: never be portrayed in any detail, nor shall any profit accrue to the abductor or
1: kidnapper. The criminal or the kidnapper must be punished in every case. 11. The letters of the word crime on a comics magazine cover shall never be appreciably greater in dimension than the other words contained in the title. The word crime shall never appear alone on a cover.
0: 12 restraint in the use of the word crime in titles or subtitles shall be exercised. We open today's show with things that are 60 in April of 2014. One of those things is Bill Haley and the Comets Rock Around the Clock, and another thing that's 60 this year
1: is? Well, that was the uh, Comics Magazine Association of America Code, which turned 60. It was prompted by the Senate hearings on comics and juvenile delinquency. And finally, Frederick Wortham's book, Seduction of the Innocent, on today's Professor Footnote. We won't be the first people to talk about it. And we won't be the last. But while we're in the middle of it, we'll do our best to clarify the details inside our sources. This is Professor Footnote.
0: An annotated conversation between Professor Joel and Professor Brett on a marginally interesting topic.
1: So the comics are invented in 1934 by M.C. Gaines who uh, made a comic magazine called Famous Funnies. And what he basically did was he was reprinting the comics that you would find in your regular Sunday newspaper, Sunday color supplement, and selling them for a bargain basement price. And he had the great idea that instead of just sending them out as the newspaper tabloid, what if I folded that paper, cut it, and made it into a little booklet? And from that point on... Until, you know, 1938, nothing much was thought about it. But in 1938, we have action comics and Superman. And comics come on the scene in an explosion. They go from zero to all over the culture in about a second and a half. And it doesn't take long before they are heavily criticized for their content. Um, 1934 – no, I'm sorry, 1940, Sterling North, a um, cultural critic – and uh, a novelist himself writes an article called A National Disgrace, which is all about how comics are ruining our children's minds.
0: And the, the move by North is worth dwelling on for a couple reasons. First of all, to say that Sterling North was a cultural critic was true in the time. Um, but what he was really a critic of quite clearly was modernity. If you look at the books he wrote, he wrote a book called Rascal, yeah. which I think is subtitled something like A Memoir of a, of a Better Time or a Better Age. He's pining for uh, an, an America that's sort of pre-industrial, right? And that pre-industrial age um, was also a time when people either read literature or they were illiterate.
1: Yeah, he had a he had a yearning for a past, you know. In in the actually in the national disgrace article, he d- describes the feeling of getting a new book and opening it up and the smell of it, and laying on a, on a on a sunlit floor with his children experiencing new books. He's clearly nostalgic about an age that isn't quite past, but he feels is slipping away from him.
0: Yeah, and his his metaphors, you know, he calls comics a uh, uh, poisonous mushroom growth or uh, yeah. something like that. His, his metaphors are all organic as opposed to industrial. He, he really is working against this notion. The second reason Sterling North is worth pointing out is he starts to frame the public discussion of the influence of comics as a function of comics and children. And the truth is that comics probably always had um, a much more robust readership. You know, the the story we tell ourselves about comics in the early 1900s is a story about children, you know, reading their favorite superheroes. But given that they came out of the print culture of newspaper, comics probably appealed to a variety of people, immigrants trying to acquire the English language, um, uh, semi-literate workers. You know, one of the reasons political cartoons were so famous is they made the newspaper accessible to uh, a class of people. Who didn't have access to it. So, people who are arguing about the influence of comics benefit by making it a function of children because they can tell children how to behave, but they can't tell other citizens what they ought to appreciate or what they ought to read. And so, really, you know, Sterling North isn't just grasping for a more nostalgic time, he's also grasping for a particular class of taste.
1: Look up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane. It's super- Footnote 1 Sterling Norris's Attack on Comics, A National Disgrace, was originally published in 1940 in the Chicago Daily News and reprinted throughout the nation. For accounts of the decency crusades against the comic book industry in the first half of the 20th century, see David Haydew's The Ten Cent Plague, The Great Comic Book Scare and How It Changed America and David Park's article in Cultural Studies, Volume 16, Issue 2. Yeah, and comics, you know, from its very early inception, we're three years in when World War II begins in earnest for Americans. And so Sterling North's argument about how comics are ruining our children is kind of put on hold while we go through the war. Um, And... Comics very, very quickly become adapted for soldiers, become adapted for adults who need a portable distraction from the horrors of actually being in the war.
0: While also being used to prop up morale back home on the home front, right? And so we have – we're also at a time when we're starting to realize that mass media and print media have the ability to function as propaganda, not necessarily in the negative connotation but in terms of, of uh, mechanisms for influence – and, and, and gaining consent. And so we recognize that these comic books have effects.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and so as we come out of the war, um, the focus comes back on comic books again. In fact, uh, the Reverend Thomas F. Doyle in The Catholic World complains openly that one of the problems with comics is that it's sur- supplanting the Gospels in children's minds. He feels more people know about Superman and the myth of Superman than know about Christ. And this kind of talk starts to become more and more focused on how bad comics are, um, how they're ruining our children's lives. And
0: what's missing, the missing ingredient so far leading up to the sort of mid-40s and late-40s is all we've got are decency crusaders who are coming from religious ranks or who are uh, literary critics or other authors. Um, By the mid-40s, we recognize that media have effects, and we want to scientize those effects. And to do that, uh, there's no greater figure to talk about than Frederick Wortham. The 1920s were an interesting time to be studying the brain. Without MRI machines mapping the activities of the human mind, the brain was treated largely under the burgeoning fields of psychology and psychiatry. German doctor Frederick Wortham sought to extend Freudian analysis by contextualizing mental health and development alongside socioeconomic
1: conditions. The relationship between mental health and the health of civil society was a popular field in the United States, where progressive era politics had long sought social change under the banner of mental hygiene. In 1922, Wortham crossed the Atlantic. By
0: 1927, he
1: was an American citizen. By the middle of the 20th century,
0: Wortham would become a famous advocate for mental health. By the end of the 20th century, Wortham's contributions as a public intellectual would be, at best, marked as a footnote
1: to more famous figures he befriended. Wortham's commitment to explaining mental development in light of social contexts made him a popular trial psychiatrist, willing to testify on behalf of many a social outcast.
0: Wortham became fast friends with Clarence Darrow, crusader against capital punishment and in favor of socially aware justice.
1: Wortham famously developed the mosaic test, a clinical exercise where patients arrange fragments into images for analysis. Wortham adapted this test for one of his more artistic patients, Zelda Fitzgerald.
0: Much as Wortham combined his interest in physiology with psychiatry, Wortham's mosaic test represented a combination of his interests in clinical practice and in the fine arts. Wortham would eventually acquire eleven of Fitzgerald's paintings, along with works by Chagall, Lisitsky, and Moholy-Nagy, among others.
1: Wortham's desire to function as a public intellectual led him to publish cultural criticism, including literary criticism of a few of his other friends, including Arthur Miller and Richard Wright.
0: Richard Wright would gather Paul Robeson and Ralph Ellison to consult with Wortham on the opening of the Lafargue Clinic in Harlem, where Wortham would interact with many of the delinquents who would inform his various book projects.
1: Wortham's commitment to accounting for mental health in light of sociocultural conditions made him particularly useful for many a leftist legal cause.
0: He sought psychiatric and material relief for Ethel Rosenberg, who was kept in isolation in a men's prison in the years leading up to her 1953 execution for treason.
1: Wortham did not necessarily believe Rosenberg was innocent, but he did view the government's treatment of Ethel Rosenberg as leverage against her husband and as an illustration of America's cultural obsession with violence.
0: The violence that culture imposes on its citizens made Wortham a useful resource in the Brown v. Board of Education case of 1954. Where other experts argued over legal questions of equality, Wortham's work framed segregation as a threat to public health.
1: And yet, for all his socially progressive work, Wortham is largely remembered, if he is remembered at all, as a decency crusader against the comic book industry.
0: In April of 1954, Frederick Wortham released Seduction of the Innocent, a book that detailed all of the harms he had observed in young comic readers in his time in public clinics in New York City. That same month, Wortham appeared before the Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency, which would result in the comic book code of
1: 1954. Despite the popularity of Seduction of the Innocent as a cultural touchstone for decency, it was a flop at the bookstore. Wortham's commitment to publishing in public venues and the broadcast of the Senate hearings had made the ideas of the book publicly accessible without needing to buy the book.
0: Those who did buy the book, academics in particular, found it lacking in substance. What clinical psychology viewed as practical evidence,
1: the growing fields of social science viewed as anecdotes and stories. Wortham's hybrid medical and psychiatric approach to mental health placed him in between intellectual homes. He was not an orthodox Freudian, and so was viewed skeptically by the psychoanalyst community. He was not a methodical scientist, and so was viewed suspiciously by the scientific community.
0: Wortham was also in between political homes. On the one hand, Wortham was an advocate for the progressive politics of integration and socialization. On the other hand, he was adamant that comic books and other cultural texts were in need of a conservative interpretation of decency.
1: He argued that he should be taken seriously and trusted as an intellectual to the point of nearly alienating the NAACP lawyers in the Brown v. Board of Education case while he was also trying to make his ideas accessible to the public, while slowly phasing out publishing in academic venues. And so, as neither analyst nor scientist, neither progressive or conservative, neither academic nor public intellectual, Frederick Wortham, one-time favorite of artists, writers, thinkers, and politicians, faded away. So, onto this pile of cultural criticism about comics and how bad they are for our youth, comes Frederick Wortham, and he's really a right place, right time guy.
0: Yeah, he brings a, he brings a kind of scientific legitimacy to these otherwise um, sort of toothless or unclinical uh, uh, cultural criticisms by literary people or by art critics, who are clearly making arguments about taste. And while Wortham is also making an argument about taste, he's making an argument about about comic books and decency uh, that looks scientific. Um, And what looks scientific in the 1920s and 30s when he's working uh, doesn't necessarily look scientific to us now. Uh, But you have to remember he's studying mental behavior in a time when there was no – sort of uh, technical way to chart the brain. And so he has to sort of make it up. And he – I say make it up. He's not inventing it. Um, But he has to patch together both medical uh, information from his background and psychiatric information to try to figure out why people do the things they do. And the reason he's the best guy to comment on comic books is because he had spent the last 25 years working in urban clinics for juveniles.
1: Yeah, and so he comes in and and, uh, and he begins to comment right away in articles about how in his research, in his clinical research, um, looking at uh, the urban use of uh, spe- specifically the Lafargue Clinic in Harlem, he's finding that comic books are so bad that they're putting ideas into the minds of these children.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's his assumption. And, and he, you know, if you read Seduction of the Innocent, it really comes across as uh as kind of a stereotype of a freudian psychoanalyst but the one thing that made uh wortham different than than orthodox freudians is that he f- he fundamentally believed that the mind wasn't um uh didn't exist in a vacuum right and freudian psychoanalysis sort of believes that there's the the id the ego and the superego and all those things sort of get shaped uh Isolated in the mind of the individual, and and Wortham comes in and says, "Nope, we have to take social context into account." Uh, this is what his his mentors uh, were doing uh, in Germany and in Johns Hopkins when he comes over to the United States, and so he wants to think about the social conditions that shape mental behavior, uh, and he's thinking about uh, criminal uh, justice systems and what that means. Um, he becomes very popular with Clarence Darrow largely because he's one of the few. Alienist who's willing to talk on behalf of black um, uh, uh, black criminals, right? No one else wants to do it, and and he he will because he he believes that we need to take social context into an account, and because he thinks that the other thing he's really interested in doing is taking this psychiatric approach to the public, and saying you guys have to build better societies to make better to produce better mental hygiene. Right, as they, they would have said and so he's constantly writing in Ladies Home Journal, Reader's Digest um, and so while he is a scientist he doesn't necessarily look like um, a, a scientist in, in our terms he wears a lab coat he calls himself a doctor he's constantly pumping uh, his, own, his own tires right? he's reminding people that he's an intellectual uh, sometimes to the point of, of angering the people he's working with Uh, as you would suspect uh, uh, a snobbish German doctor and psychiatrist (laughs) might do. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird,
1: it's a plane, it's super... Footnote 2
0: Frederick Wortham is a contentious figure even 60 years after Seduction of the Innocent. You can read a favorable account of Wortham in Amy Kiste Nyberg's 1998 book, Seal of Approval, The History of the Comics Code. A more critical account of Wortham can be found in David Park's 2002 essay in Cultural Studies. And, of course, you can read Wortham himself in the 1954 book, Seduction of the Innocent.
1: Well, and and he very much wants to be the public face of this crusade. He's come in and he's seen in his absolute way of of seeing that this is a scourge on our children, and he believes this wholeheartedly. There's no doubt about it. And so they embrace him as the face of the movement because he does have the lab coat. Because he will say, in my, in my esteemed estimation,
0: (laughs) right. You know, and it is. It's worth noting his expert opinion is roughly 20 years of working with youth. Yeah. who had been sent to children's court. And so it's not like he's unfamiliar with comic books or with children's crime. Um, and so he takes this and he writes this book, Seduction of the Innocent. And Seduction of the Innocent lays out all the ways that comic books are terrible. Um, and he's he's got a fairly complicated argument here. It's not just that comic books have this influence. Um, because he's 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 pretty sophisticated in his argument. He thinks comic books unduly influence youth, but he also thinks that comic books are a reflection of a fundamentally violent culture. Yes, And so that, that he wants to fix comic books, but he wants to fix comic books because he wants to fix the broader question of a violent culture, right? The reason he testifies on behalf of, of Ethel Rosenberg is he thinks the death penalty is an indication of America's violent streak, um, and so he really is, you know, he's, he's kind of all over the place at yeah. all times. Um, and Seduction of the innocent is all over the place. He talks about how it teaches people to perform crimes, how it teaches them homosexual relationships, particularly uh, and most notably in the character of uh, Batman and Robin. He talks about how it promotes racial hatred. He talks about how the bubbles and the frames prevent uh, children from learning how to read appropriately. I mean he is really all that in the kitchen sink uh, in terms of his argument in Seduction of the Innocent. There is no part or no facet of the comic book – that isn't destructive. The advertisements are bad. The art is bad. The language is bad. The lessons are bad. The crimes are bad, like everything, you know, and the chapters just keep laying out. Um, And so he builds this pretty stunning case, uh, but also, you know, it's a stunning case that has to be dealt with um, fairly carefully because it seems like he's trying to to accuse comics of every possible thing he can accuse them of.
1: And, and he uses a very inflammatory language. I mean, I think the sentence that stuck with me was he he he, sa- he says in the book, I think Hitler was a beginner compared to the comic book industry.
0: Yeah, and he's, he clearly has a chip on his shoulder uh, towards the comic book industry because as he's writing Seduction of the Innocent, he's also writing articles in Ladies Home Journal, and, yeah. Dutch and all these other places. and And the comic book industry is constantly sending him – um, cease and desist letters, you know, and they send it to his publisher, Reinhardt, um, you know, like, if you're going to press this book, you should know we're going to sue you. And he writes back the cattiest stuff to them. You know, he'll write back like, well, if you think you can prove otherwise, that'd be fine. Or he'll write back, uh, I'm sorry, you know, Ladies Home Journal at one point asked him to, uh, uh, to clarify something he had written in an article for them. Uh, because they're getting pressed by the comic book industry. And he writes back to Ladies Home Journal, uh, I w- it's unfortunate you don't keep better track of your records. It was in your <laughs> magazine. He's just, and an in, in, in Seduction of the Innocent, he's got a comic book cover with a, a doctor bound in the corner while a guy's robbing his office. And the caption isn't anything about the argument about comic books. It just says, uh, that's, a, that's a picture that the comic book industry wished I looked like. You know, he's just sort of always trying to say, oh, look, I'm the doctor on the comic book cover. They're trying to secretly send a message that they wish I was bound and gagged in a corner. The Comic Magazine Association of America Comic Book Code of 1954. General
1: Standards, Part B. One. No comic magazine shall use the word horror or terror in its title. 2. All scenes of horror, excessive
0: bloodshed, gory or gruesome crimes, depravity, lust, sadism and
1: masochism shall not be permitted. 3. All lurid, unsavory, gruesome illustrations shall be eliminated. Four.
0: Inclusion of stories dealing with evil shall be used or shall be published only where the intent is to illustrate a moral issue, and in no case shall evil be presented alluringly,
1: nor so as to injure the sensibilities of the reader. 5. Scenes dealing with or instruments associated with Walking Dead, torture vampires and vampirism, ghouls, cannibalism, and werewolfism are prohibited.
0: The comic book code that we've been reading uh, sort of sporadically throughout this is the result of the the Senate subcommittee hearings on juvenile delinquency that Wortham testifies at. But Wortham viewed the comic book code as a failure. He really hated all comics all the time. And so the the hearings don't work out the way he wanted them to work out. Uh, and in the aftermath, uh, it turns out that, that Wortham's encountering a bunch of other failures. Uh, his role as public intellectual on the comic book issue starts to unravel uh, sort of immediately after the hearings.
1: Yeah, he very much wanted to eradicate comics as the plight and scourge that he saw it to be but at the same time during the hearings, during his testimony he was busy saying things like, oh you can read all about this in Seduction of the Innocents which is a book of the month club pick you know, he, so he's very much saying that yes I'm a scientist, yes I'm this intellectual but you know what? Every mom and dad should read this book.
0: Yeah, and and oddly enough, all of that self promotion and all of the hawking of that book in various venues killed book sales. Yeah. So um, Wortham tries to publish a book on television. Uh, in fact, there's a there's a chapter towards the end um, in Seduction of the Innocent about television, where he makes this sort of odd argument that if you want innocent. If you want innocent audiences for TV, audiences who can use TV for good reasons, you need to you need to make it possible for that audience to be innocent in the first place. So before we can even worry about TV, we've got to kill comic books. Yeah. And eventually, he goes on to say, "No, we got to kill violence on TV too." But his his author or his publisher won't take that book because Seduction sold so poorly because everyone had access to the argument; they didn't need to go read the book. And had they read the book, it would have been it would have been nuts to them because it's just anecdote after anecdote of him talking to juvenile delinquents. I met Willie, or there was this kid at the LaFargue clinic, or uh, he likes to review the Hookie club, which is a, a group session he had with kids who were perpetually playing hookie from school. Um, and for a clinical psychiatric guy, that counts as what he does. That's his clinical method, his clinical practice. But for scientists, it just reads like he's telling stories.
1: Not only that, but a lot of the a lot of the the ways he was reporting this out into the public were a little ginned up, you know. So he's working with the Far Clinic up in Harlem, and most of the patients he's dealing with these juvenile delinquents. He likes to cite and their cases that he likes to cite. They're African American. They're 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 poor urban kids. But when he publishes the articles in the Ladies' Home Journal, uh, you know, he'll famously famously published an article which had illustrations, photogra- photographic illustrations of, of kids at play being influenced by comic books. So you'd see one kid being tied to a chair and two other kids with, like, an axe and a knife talking about what they're going to do to him. And these kids are all middle-class suburban white kids, whereas the actual reports, the actual science, in quotes, that he's doing about this, um, were stories taken from... Uh, black kids, poor black kids, who had never actually purported to read comic books in the way that he's talking about it. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's super... Footnote 3 Bart Beatty's Frederick Wortham and the Critique of Mass Culture provides an account of the legacy of Wortham's work and his clash with social scientists and the field of media effects. Carol L. Tilley's 2012 article in Information and Culture provides an alternative account of Wortham's legacy and charts some of Wortham's suspicious research choices.
0: Yeah, and you can see that there are two ways that this sort of comes to light. Um, one is uh, Wortham himself is wildly inconsistent in Seduction of the Innocent. So he'll say at the outset of the book when he's trying to frame up why talking about comics, he'll say not every comic book is bad, right, that that the good ones can't make it through to the right audience because the bad ones are so bad. Uh, But when he gets before the Senate, he says, nope, absolutely, they're all bad, right? Even if they don't show violence, even if they don't show sex, they're bad for literacy. Bad, bad, bad. Comic books are bad all the time. Um, And he'll say stuff in Seduction of the Innocent like, you know, I wouldn't try to get uh, my patients to blame comic books for their ills. I wouldn't even present it that way. But when he has the hooky club together, he says, what do you guys think about comics? You know, and he'll say, no, no patient has ever said comic books are the sole reason to blame. Um, but further on in the book, he'll say, the only reason I can conclude that this person, you know, um, beat up another boy or killed another uh, uh, classmate was because of comic books. So he's sort of all over the place. Later on, once people had access to his notes and his writings um, that his wife gave to the Library of Congress uh, after he died— uh, his notes demonstrate that not only was he wildly inconsistent in, in the book, he was wildly inconsistent in methodically arranging these things. So not only was he saying they were white kids when they were black kids, sometimes he was combining the experiences of two or maybe three patients into one. He was being selective about what parts of their self-description uh, of comic book exposure they'd use. So one of them um, was about a, a, a homosexual child, who was talking about Batman and Robin as maybe being homosexual. And in the book, Seduction of the Innocent, that's treated as a test case of the sexual perversions of the comic book industry. But in his notes, it becomes very clear that the kid only read Batman and Robin a couple times. He read all these other books much more. Um, and he sort of says these things about homosexuality and passing, like, you know, maybe they live together. That's kind of a, uh, uh, you know, that's that might be like me and this relationship I have with another, uh, uh, you know, another boy. But, but mostly I'm talking about crime books. All that crime stuff gets cut out of the, the retelling, you know. And so he's got an ethical problem in addition to being sort of inconsistent. And then another interesting thing happens in the 1950s, which is that media effects theory starts to take off, which is – an empirical social science of measuring media effects. Um, and and they're looking for empirical behavioral data. You know, how many, not just you're talking to juvenile delinquents and they all say they've read comic books, how many have read comic books about X that demonstrated, you know, theme, how many have read comics about crime that demonstrated themes of rape that go to children's court for sexual crimes? Um, and they're they're also more likely to make arguments about limited effects of media, you know, rather than this sort of strong effect, you read a comic book, you turn into a delinquent that Wortham's arguing for. So after uh, Seduction of the Innocent comes out, no member of the, the public buys it because they've heard the argument. And the science community or the academic community that buys it, buys it. And all they find are, is a science that isn't really scientific, right? The sort of sheen of his lab coat isn't the right kind of lab coat. He's putting people on the couch, and they actually want a harder version of science. And so, um, you know, after 1954, Wortham sort of fades, and he fades fast and hard. In his 1992 obituary, Mad Magazine founder William Gaines was described as a publishing industry outsider. He eschewed business attire and was, according to a friend, styled only by the force of gravity. He inherited a faltering picture book empire from his father and turned it into what one 1950s newspaper called the gold plated sewers of New
1: York. He voluntarily appeared before Congress to defend his empire. My father before me was proud of the comics he published. My father saw in the comic book a vast field of visual education. He was a pioneer. Sometimes he was ahead of his time. He published picture stories from science, picture stories from world history, and picture stories from American history. He published picture stories from the Bible. I published comic magazines in addition to picture stories from the Bible. For example, I publish horror comics. I was the first publisher in these United States to publish horror comics. I am responsible. I started them. Some may not like them. That is a matter of
0: personal taste. A few months before he sat before Congress, Gaines had offered a sense of his personal taste. He asked artist Will Elder to draw a horror scene to the words of Clement Clark's Moore's A Visit from St. Nicholas. The mouse wasn't stirring because it was hanging from a meat hook. Marilyn Monroe was a dancing sugar plum. I thought it was funny, Elder said, but it happened that some other people didn't agree. The state of Massachusetts reportedly banned the comic. New York police visited Gaines's EC Comics Asked to buy an issue of Panic, including the Elder comic, and when the receptionist offered it, she was arrested for indecency. The charges wouldn't stick. The Massachusetts Attorney General, according to Gaines, called it a misunderstanding. While Gaines described the Panic ban as a misunderstanding, he described Wortham as willfully misrepresenting
1: his comics. I would like to discuss, if you bear with me a moment more, something with which Dr. Wortham provoked me into. Dr. Wortham, I'm happy to say I've just caught in a half truth, and I'm very indignant about it. He said there is a magazine now on the stands preaching racial intolerance. The magazine he is referring to is my magazine. What he said, as much as he said, was true. There do appear in this magazine such materials as Spick, Dirty Mexican. But Dr. Wortham did not tell you what the plot of the story was. This is one of a series of stories designed to show the evils of race prejudice and mob violence, in this case, against Mexican Catholics. And Gaines also testified that it would be just as difficult to explain the harmless thrill of a horror story to a Dr. Wortham as it would be to explain the sublimity of love to a frigid old maid. Gaines' testimony at
0: once resisted and embraced Wortham's brand of psychiatry. Unlike Wortham, he
1: believed only aberrant children were adversely affected by comics. Our American children are, for the most part, normal children. They are bright children. But those who want to prohibit comic magazines seem to see dirty, sneaky, perverted monsters who use the comics as a blueprint for action. Like Wortham, Gaines seemed to believe children were mentally complex individuals. What are we afraid of? Are we afraid of our own children? Do we forget that they are citizens too and entitled to select what to read or do? We think our children are so evil, simple-minded, that it takes a story of murder to set them to murder? A story of robbery to set them to robbery? And like Wortham, Gaines wanted to draw attention to the broader social context of violence. Anyone, any child, any adult can find much more extreme descriptions of violence in the daily newspaper. You can find plenty of examples in today's newspaper. In today's edition of the Daily News, which more people will have access to than they will to any comic magazine, there are headline stories like this. Man in Texas woke up to find he had killed his wife with a gun. She had a bullet in her head, and he had a revolver in his hand. How about the next one? 20-year-old youth helps poison the mother and father of a friend. But at his most basic, Gaines presented his testimony as an argument about democracy and the free market. I'm not saying it is wrong, but when you attack comics, when you talk about banning them as they do in some cities, you are only a step away from banning crimes in the newspapers. Here's something interesting which most of us don't know. Crime news is being made in some places. The United Nations UNESCO report, which I believe is the only place that it is printed, shows that crime news is not permitted to appear in newspapers in Russia or communist China, or other communist-held territories. We print our crime news. We don't think that crime news or any news should be banned because it is bad for children. Once you start to censor, you must censor everything. You must censor comic books, radio, television, and newspapers. Then you must censor what people may say. Then you will have turned this country into Spain or Russia. Eventually, Gaines is asked
0: about an editorial he planned to publish in his various magazines entitled, Are You a Red Duke? Senator Hannock asks Gaines, You believe the things you say in this ad that you wrote? Yes, sir. That anybody who is anxious to destroy comics are communists?
1: I don't believe it says that. The group most anxious to destroy comics are the communists. True, but not anybody, just the group most anxious.
0: Had the real issue of the hearings been a question of government censorship, Gaines likely would have prevailed, as he had against the New York police in the panic case. But as David Park explains, the hearings were a performance meant to get the comic book industry to regulate itself. There are no First Amendment issues when a distribution company makes business decisions predicated on industrial taste. And Gaines's testimony demonstrated that
1: his sense of taste was not in line with the industry. My only limits are bounds of good taste, what I consider good taste. A cover in bad taste, for example, might be defined as holding the head a little higher so that the neck could be seen dripping blood from it. and moving the body over a little further so that the neck of the body could be seen to be bloody. When Estes
0: Kefauver pointed out that there was blood dripping from the mouth of the severed head Gaines was talking about, Gaines answered a little. The the ethical questions surrounding Wortham's work are really important to, to consider because even though the comic book code wasn't what Wortham wanted uh, out of the hearings, they had, th- that code had real material consequences for people, and, and first and foremost among those people was William Gaines.
1: Yeah, Gaines goes into the trial, and he volunteers to speak up. He feels that this is a, a really important moment, in, not just in the industry, but for him and his company. And what comes out of that trial, and it's not really a trial, it's a Senate hearing, is not Wortham's moment in the sun, but instead is this image of the severed head that he's talking about at the very end, there, and so Gaines, in, in a lot of ways, is uh, is taken out by his own by his own words. And in fact, um, in one of the books we read, it talks about uh, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby watching the show, watching the watching the, the 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 hearings on TV, and turning it off, just going stupid, stupid, stupid.
0: Yeah, Gaines really misrecognized the game that was being played. Um, It's a Senate subcommittee hearing on juvenile delinquency. And so Gaines, you know, you wouldn't necessarily blame him for thinking, well, the government's asking whether it should censor comics or not. Um, But David Parks really clear in his article by saying, look, when it comes to decency crusades, when it comes to regulation of media content, uh, the government, particularly in the United States, never censors. But they like to have hearings. And the reason they like to have hearings is because they serve as what Parks calls a show trial. It's a public trial before the court of public opinion about a media industry to urge that industry to self-censor or self-regulate. And so Gaines is making all these great arguments about censorship in communist countries, and you're a red dupe if you want to censor the comics. But at the end of the day, it wasn't ever the government that was going to step in and censor comics. It was always going to be the comic industry itself. And so there's no First Amendment argument there. Right and uh, and because of that, you know Gaines really does screw up because he grants the premise that it's personal taste. Um, he speaks right after Wortham, but before any other comic experts have spoken, and so he's really kind of left out alone on a branch um, by by everyone, by the comic book industry, by people about uh, arguing for decency. He becomes the other kind of comics. That, that are easily then the they're sort of low-hanging fruit for the industry to kick out
1: yeah and in leading up to, to the hearings uh, for from the time that the ladies Home journal article that Wortham writes in, in like 49 first shows up the pressure on the people in the comic comics industry builds and builds Um you know they're they're demonized as what are they doing to the children you could go to you know if you and i are at a cocktail party and we're having a drink and you're talking about your life as a used car salesman and you say oh hey joel what do you do for a living and i'd say well i make comics you very well very well may just turn away and walk away because i am lower than the low because of what i'm doing to our children
0: yeah and it's it's a little perplexing because at the same time, you've got Wortham arguing in his book and, and in his testimony before the subcommittee as well, that the comic book industry is out to get him, right? That they're, they're filing false lawsuits, uh, they're making threats, they're, they're trying to get the company that's going to print his book for Reinhardt to not print it. Um, there's just sort of this sort of constant notion that the comic book industry is this powerful conglomerate. Of special interests, um, and at the same time, they're getting raked over the coals. But um, you know, this is the job of media industries to get raked over the coals to make it look like you're really getting flogged, so that it looks like you've took your medicine, right? And so, you know, the. The comic book code comes out and it looks like, oh, we've solved that comic book problem. But really what happens is the comic book industry decided what they wanted in their industry and what they didn't. Right? Yeah. They self-regulated. And so the fact that there's a whole section on horror is an indication that Gaines was not at the table. Right? He was, he was targeted by the code as much as he was affected by it.
1: Look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's super. Footnote 4.
0: A complete transcript of the 1954 subcommittee hearings is available at Jamie Coville's website, thecomicbooks.com. Gaines's testimony, its fallout, and the rise of Mad Magazine are well covered in Heydu's book and many of the previously cited sources, as well as in Gaines' obituary in the New York Times from 1992 and Heydu's New York Times Magazine article from 2008.
1: yeah, and in fact, it was it was his original uh, creation. You know, having come out of this this testimony and felt felt feeling a little jarred, he realized that he had to be proactive about trying to save his business and his industry. So he begins to invite other heads of uh, lines of comics to the to lunches. And this these lunches over a month build from three or four people to the entire industry showing up and saying, okay, we're going to make an association, the Comics Magazine Association of America. We're going to draft bylaws. And in one of these meetings, Gaines sits down to see that the committee that they put on this drafts a bunch of bylaws that basically outlaw him. There can be no more horror comics. You cannot use the words weird. You cannot use the words terror. You know, basically they're all aimed at educational comics, which he runs, and he realizes he's the sacrificial lamb and says, well, I can't can't work under this, and walks away. The code also targets his revenue stream,
0: right? There's a whole section on advertisement. And so if you're making comic books for a more mature audience, you're probably getting advertising revenue from more mature advertisers. And all of those mature advertising gets uh, outlawed. Right. And so, you know, it's not just a question of you can't make that content anymore, but you also can't keep taking money from the people
1: that are underwriting it. So they've eliminated basically their entire group of of readers. They've eliminated the mature content of it Um, through the code, through getting rid of all this. They've taken an industry that is, you know, 100 percent of what literature can be, 100 percent of Westerns, horror, terror, Um, Science, the Bible. Science, the Bible, and made it into two very small things and things that are only good for juvenile readers, superheroes and cartoon funnies.
0: Yeah, and the the superhero part is interesting because, again, um, that's one of the arguments uh, that Wortham was making, that superheroes are these authoritarian, tyrannical, um, dare we say fascist. Characters, right. I mean, um, and, you know, his German is really showing here. Uh, Superman has obvious ties to, you know, Nietzsche's work of the Superman. And then so it's, you know, is Superman really a Nazi because he is the overman over everyone? Um, but I mean, of course, that was bound to fail because then Wortham is essentially asking the Senate subcommittee to be a fascist force of censoring. Right to be the authority figure that censors authority figures that we think are bad. Um, so the superhero survives uh, because it turns out we think we we like this notion of authority. It seems empowering to to children, but only to children. Yes. Right. And so they've essentially granted the whole industry just grants that premise that comic books are only for kids.
1: And one of the reasons is that most of the most of the industry that's represented in the Comics Magazine Association of America are providers of that content. And so Gaines does the only thing he can actually do. He makes the decision that he's going to get out of the comics business, and he announces in a very public way by having a a press conference where he tears up his comics and says, we will no longer uh, provide content for my new trend line, which includes horror, crime, and terror. And at the end of it, he stops making comics completely, and he turns his one thing that he's decided to keep, a humor magazine named M.A.D. from a comic book into M.A.D. magazine as we know it today.
0: The Comic Magazines Association of America Comic
1: Book Code of 1954, General Standards, Part C. All elements or techniques not specifically mentioned herein, but which are contrary to the spirit and intent of the code and are considered violations of good taste or decency, shall be prohibited. Dialogue 1. Profanity, obscenity, smut, vulgarity, or words or symbols which have acquired undesirable meanings are forbidden 2. Special precautions to avoid references to physical afflictions or deformities shall be taken 3. Although slang and colloquialisms are acceptable, excessive use of such should be discouraged and, wherever possible, good grammar shall be employed Religion 1. Ridicule or attack on any religious or racial group is never permissible. Costume. 1. Nudity in any form is prohibited, as is indecent or undue exposure. 2. Suggestive and salacious illustration or suggestive posture is unacceptable. 3. All characters shall be depicted and dressed reasonably, acceptable to society. 4. Females shall be drawn realistically, without exaggeration of any physical qualities. Note. It should be recognized that all prohibitions dealing with costume, dialogue, or artwork applies as specifically to the cover of a comic magazine as they do to the contents.
0: The Comic Magazine Association of America Comic Book Code of 1954. General Standards Part C continued
1: marriage and sex one divorce shall not be treated humorously or nor represented as desirable two illicit sex relations are neither to be hinted
0: at nor portrayed violent love scenes as well as sexual abnormalities
1: are unacceptable three respect for parents the moral code and for honorable behavior shall be fostered a sympathetic understanding of the problems of love is not a license for morbid distortion four The treatment of live romance stories shall emphasize the value of the home and the sanctity of marriage. Five, passion or romantic interest shall never be treated in such a way as to stimulate the lower and baser emotions. Six, seduction and rape shall never be shown or suggested. Seven, sexual perversion of any inference to the same is strictly forbidden. The hearings, the trial, the Comics Code Authority, the CMAA, these are things that all happen in a very small period of time. It's like a a giant buildup to a bonfire that burns so brightly, and then it's out.
0: Yeah, by the end of April 1954, um, you know, the code doesn't come out for a while until Kefauver writes his review of the hearings. But... By, by April 1954, this is pretty much out of sight and out of mind in the public realm. Uh, Joe McCarthy starts hearings on the Army being soft on communists in their ranks. So the, the Senate has other things on its mind. Um, and media scholars aren't really interested in this old print medium anymore. They turn their attention to television. Uh, and so very quickly, uh, comic books sort of disappear um, from public concern, and the folks involved
1: in this disappear as well. So comics then begin to start over, and they start over as a industry based on the interest of a very juvenile audience. But that juvenile audience begins to grow up as they did with the first group of comics. You know, comics in 1938, we begin with Superman, we're looking at all these, these different uh, iterations of superheroes, when comics come back in full force through the Marvel Revolution and then DC picking it up, they come back as a superhero genre, and we look at the generation that picks it up right after the Foffer hearings, right after Gaines has given up all his horror and crime magazines, and comics begin to grow again, and it takes a little bit longer because the comics code is busy choking it off, but as we look at it in 2014, as we sit here today, we have a culture very much based on the influence of comics in society. Our biggest movies star Batman star superheroes Superman you know 75 years old uh, since 75 years since that comic came out is still as big a presence in our culture as he ever was which indicates the force of comics in a way that the the comic
0: book code and that discussion didn't want to admit um, which is that they have influence but that influence is probably value neutral Right. That, and so the code starts to adapt as well. Once we start realizing, well, yeah, there are media effects, but they're limited, uh, or they work in this way or that way in conjunction, the comic book code starts to get looser. You know, like, well, yeah, comic books can tell a story and maybe we need to start talking about drug use. And so one of the reasons the comic books code gets reviewed or revised uh, is because Spider-Man wants to take up a drug abuse storyline. And the comic book code wouldn't have allowed for that. And so we're constantly adjusting to meet the needs of the audience. We start taking the audience uh, more seriously because clearly they have an attachment to these characters.
1: And as we look back on it, as we look back at this one specific moment in time – where Bill Gaines and Frederick Wortham are the stars of that moment, we remember them as these two major actors in this play. That in the end was really much ado about nothing. Sooner or later, sooner actually, they were gone from our, our gone from our, our societal consciousness. El rey de los ritmos, rico mambo. We here at Mad Magazine are all for fighting juvenile delinquency, but we are for fighting this problem intelligently and scientifically. We just can't take seriously those pseudo-experts who come forward from time to time with articles claiming cure-alls for this vast and complicated problem. Articles like this, baseball is ruining our children. By Dr. Frederick Worthless
0: Society is like a garden, and our children are like flowers that bud, grow, and bloom there. Unfortunately, in today's garden, many of our flowers are going bad. The fact is, they're turning into stink weeds. When one weak flower goes bad in a garden, it is nothing to worry about. But when many flowers begin going bad in a garden, that is something to worry about. Pretty soon, the whole place will be one awful mess. Today, juvenile delinquency plagues society. Thousands of flowers are going bad in our garden, and it's time we exposed the case. And it's not Japanese beetles. The cause can be found right smack in the middle of our garden, on the grass, where they play baseball. For many years, I worked closely with juvenile delinquents then my hair turned gray and they kicked me out of their gang but while i was with them i studied them i questioned them probed their minds uncovered their ids examined their egos and rifled through their pockets. And in every case I examined, I repeatedly came up with the same shocking fact that one time or another, every one of those poor, misguided children had been exposed to the game of baseball. They had either played it themselves or watched it being played, not to mention countless other indirect exposures such as baseball magazines, baseball record books,
1: and the worst offender of all, baseball bubblegum cards. Case number 36. Irving Smedley, age 11, was brought into children's court on a charge of having slammed a playmate in the head with a stick. Irving could not logically explain why he did it. A search of Irving's pockets uncovered the bubblegum card, showing Ted Williams slamming a baseball with a bat. Obviously, this is where young Smedley got the idea.
0: Yes, the game of baseball is souring the soil of society's garden, rotting our flowering youth. Let me analyze this game for you. Let me expose the psychological undertones present in this so-called sport. And I can do this, after all, I'm a psychiatrist the very essence of baseball is hostile aggression take for example the act of batting the function of the batter is to swing a lethal weapon a club with all his brute strength at a defenseless ball with the sole purpose of smashing it as hard as and as far as he can the harder and farther he smashes it
1: the greater his reward the bunt is another form of batting the ball the player who is expected to swing hard at the ball, suddenly switches his stance in order to tap the pitch lightly down in front of the plate, catching his opponent off guard. Here, our young people learn that sneaky tactics are also rewarded. What kind of healthy example is this for our youth? With this act of
0: brute force successfully completed, the batter seeks out safety by running to first base.
1: Runs, mind you, like a thief in the night. Case number 64, Melvin Koznowski, age 12, was apprehended while attempting to steal valuable sculpture from local art museum. He could offer no explanation for taking the work of art. Melvin's belongings included a copy of the Dodger yearbook containing the picture of Pee Wee Reese attempting to steal a base. Obviously, Melvin had tried to outdo him. Is he so plagued with guilt that he cannot walk? The opposition, a team of nine equally hostile and
0: aggressive men, whose purpose is to deprive the batter of his desire to reach safety, pounce upon the violence-inflicted ball and attempt to relay it to the protector of a base before the
1: batter can arrive. A shoestring catch describes the action of a player who runs in and retrieves an otherwise safely hit ball before it touches the ground, literally catching it at his shoes. Such a feat usually earns a burst of applause, teaching that to deprive another of what is rightfully his is a laudable act. An arbiter dressed in uniform
0: subtly suggestive of a policeman judges the play and makes his decision. Consequently, only one of the protagonists can be pleased. The other must rebel. He defies authority as our children watch. And so it goes throughout the course of the game, one disgraceful exhibition after another, deplorable examples for our
1: impressionable youth. Next issue, Dr. Worthless continues with a second installment, The Little League. Hotbed of Juvenile Crime, MAD Magazine, Issue 34, 1957. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Footnote is produced by Joel Janins, Associate Professor of Art and Design.
0: And Brett Omen, Assistant Professor of Communication and English at the University of North Dakota.
1: In conjunction with the Digital Press at the University of North Dakota.
0: To learn more about today's topic and our work cited, you can visit our website,
1: ProfessorFootnote.com. You can provide feedback to the Professor Footnote podcast at our website or via Twitter at ProfFootnote. Professor
0: Footnote is recorded in the lab of the Working Group in Digital and New Media at the University of North Dakota. The Comic Magazine Association of America Comic Book Code of 1954. General Standards,
1: Part C, Continued, Code for Advertising Matter. These regulations are applicable to all magazines published by members of the Comics Magazine Association of America Incorporated. Good taste shall be the guiding principle in the acceptance of advertising. 1. Liquor and tobacco advertising is not acceptable. 2. Advertisement of sex or sex instruction books are unacceptable. 3. The sale of picture postcards, pinups, art studies, or any other
0: reproduction of nude or semi-nude figures is prohibited.
1: 4. Advertising for the sale of knives or realistic gun facsimiles is prohibited. 5. Advertising for the sale of fireworks is prohibited. 6. Advertising dealing with the sale of gambling equipment or printed manner dealing with gambling shall not be accepted. 7. Nudity with meretricious purpose and salacious posture
0: shall not be permitted in the advertising of any product. Clothed figures shall never be presented in
1: such a way as to be offensive or contrary to good taste or morals. 8. To the best of his ability, each publisher shall, shall ascertain that all statements made in advertisements conform to fact and avoid misrepresentations. 9. Advertisements of medical, health, or toiletry
0: products of questionable nature are to be rejected. Advertisements for medical, health, or toiletry products endorsed by the American Medical Association or the American Dental Association shall be deemed acceptable if they conform with all other conditions of this advertising code.
1: Klockan tolv halva dygnet flytt Det tid att börja om och oh,
0: Vi ska runt, runt, runt i vår bräng Vi ska slå runt, 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 runt Och sväng vår glada gäng vi Ska slå runt och aldrig gå
1: i säng